Welcome to Loving the Christ Life. I'm Brad Wilson. Welcome to podcast number 170 here on this great broadcast that we do each week where we highlight wonderful teachings from Warren Litzman. We are in part number 16 today on the great study of Jesus and Paul. Let's get right into it. Here's Warren. I'm trying to give you what it is that the Holy Spirit would say to you. What he would say to you from the scriptures, what he would reveal to you. And so far today, I've centered much of our attention on the fact that the Holy Spirit would reveal to you what is written in the Word. particularly about our death. Now, the Apostle Paul is the first one to ever manifest that. That's why my subject is Jesus and Paul. It is Jesus manifested in the first greatest way Jesus was manifested in humans, in the Apostle Paul. He wasn't manifested... That way in Peter. Peter lives with him, slept with him, ate with him, walked with him. He didn't have the same feeling and understanding that Paul did. For Peter, Jesus was all an outer person. For Paul, he was all inner. He only knew him by the Spirit, by vision, by revelation. So the Apostle Paul was the first to grasp what happened at the cross. Just to contrast him with Peter, we don't even know where Peter was at that time. He was somewhere where the, wherever there was a rooster, that's where he was. <laughs> But he only was involved in the outer part of it. Day of Pentecost, he had his first inner relationship with Christ and didn't know, didn't know what it was. He said, he said it was what Joel said. And so that's okay. He got that part too, but he didn't see Christ in him, which Jesus said he would know on that day. So it was left to the Apostle Paul to know about the death of Jesus and to manifest it and to write about it. Now let's say Paul had seen this. This is the first foundation stone in Revelation knowledge. That's the first foundation stone. What would be the next thing? What would this, in Revelation knowledge, what would follow next? Because that can't be the end. You can't... Just leave it there in death. Of course, out of death comes life. So we haven't really lost anything. We've gained eternal life by Christ's death. What would be the next thing that happened to the Apostle Paul in Revelation knowledge? What would he see next by this knowledge of Christ in him that must be done? Well, I think the story is vividly told by Paul, and it's in Philippians 3. So let's turn to Philippians 3 and study it. I've been uh, 
in my study for years have branded most of the, the chapters in the epistles, like Ephesians is the greatest document ever written, Galatians is the greatest uh, uh, statement of liberty to be found in print. But Philippians 3 is the greatest confession of a hungry and honest man. A hungry and honest man. It is here that he follows death. It is here that he follows his prime relationship with Christ on the cross. You see, I never talk to you just about Jesus dying for your sins. He did that. Scripture says so. But I'll not talk to you about that. You already know that. When I talk to you, I'll talk to you about your death on the cross. That's the way Paul handles this. So after his death on the cross, what follows next? So we're going to deal with some of these words in Philippians, beginning at verse 1. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. To me is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Now he, he's in revelation knowledge here. He's talking to people who have had a revelation or a knowledge that Christ lives in them. And so he says, what I'm about to say to you is say. Now what he's going to say is the hardest things he ever said. They are the most soul-searching. They, they relate to the deepest hunger that was ever in the Apostle Paul, a deep hunger. This was in his soulish part. We're really not going to deal with spirit here. We're going to deal with soul. So he says... It's not grievous for me to talk to you about this because you understand something. Uh, to be honest with you, I feel that way about you folk in South Africa. Now, I know I, I, uh, I really shock a lot of people by what I say. But the, the great thing that's happened in South Africa is most of you were led to this long before I got here. You saw bits, pieces, and parts of it. And it, it wasn't any great shock to you. And I can't say that about a lot of places I've been around the world. So I've never soft-pedaled here. And I can use this verse to you, that when I talk to you, I think it'll be all right. I think it'll go over all right, just like he said here. And it's not grievous the way I talk to you. Now, there'll be some hurt, but uh, uh, the Lord will heal them because he knows what I'm doing. I'm doing what he told me to do. I'm doing what he wants me to do. And so I feel like this message is not grievous for most of you. I think it is safe. Safe for us to talk about these things. Now, in my walk, I'm going to come across a lot of people that's not safe. And I'll get a lot of shots back at me. Uh, I figure if you take shots at something, somebody's going to shoot back at you. But uh, that's okay. I'm well uh, armored for that. But that's the way Paul begins this confession he's going to make. Now, he has seen his death. Revelation knowledge has given to him his death on the cross. He sees that. It's ironic that he goes into this next verse because here, once again, right dividing of the word is a motivation behind this second verse. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision." Concision. Beware of the co-minglers. Beware of them. 
Now, I must, I must tell you, before I go any further, if you don't have a King James Bible, you'll be left out of much of what is said tonight because we're going to make a heavy emphasis on the, King, the original King James. I don't even know if the new King James will have this. But he has made a statement now as he goes into this to beware of the co-minglers. Beware of those who mix it all up. He calls them evil workers. And I've got to tell you this. Co-mingling is the most dangerous thing that happens to us because it sounds right. It's like a poison. It sounds right. It tastes right. Most every one of us have been on that medicine since we've been saved. You say, well, it didn't poison me. Yes, it did. Because when I come to you showing you plainly what's in the Scripture, you're shocked. A lady can stand here and said, it's been 60 years. You see, we're all like that. I was like that. I thought I knew everything that Paul had to say but I didn't understand him at all until revelation knowledge took hold. Commingling is poison that affects your prayer life. It, ex it affects your service for God. It affects everything because it leaves you down and out when things don't work like you put them together. See, When it doesn't work right, you just feel blah. You'll never have that feeling when you get the revelation that Christ is in you. Now, I have body days that are bad. I even have some mind days that are bad. You knew that from the beginning. I'm not all here. <laughs> but I never have a bad spirit day because he never leaves me nor departs me, and I got that fixed in my mind. As well as I know I have this finger, I know he's in me. So my spirit with God is relaxed. I've entered into my rest. What is my rest? I'm not confused anymore. What is Hebrews 4 and 3 where, G, where uh, the writer says that the Lord prayed that he'd have some that entered in his rest? It, it, it even uses the hard word, hardest word used of God in, in the scriptures where it says God swore. You know, in Texas, when you swear, we rebuke you. I don't know what God says when he swears, but said God swore he'd have some that enter into that rest. What is that rest? You've entered into a state of being that is perfect. I didn't say in mind. I didn't say in body. I said in spirit. God swore he would have some that come to that. And, of course, Hebrews 4 is talking about Israel. They never came to it. That's why God swore. He said, one day I'm going to have some that come to that kind of rest. What is the rest? The people who have it settled. They got it settled. Israel never got it settled. Commingling never gets it settled. That means when you commingle and don't know for sure what God's saying to you, you don't have it settled. I'll tell you about a co-mingling preacher. I was one. I'd take a good verse of Scripture out of Genesis. I'd take a verse out of David. He would uh, con 
confirm it. I'd take a verse of Scripture from Jesus, and I'd take a verse of Scripture from Paul, and I'd preach a sermon from it. It was poison. All the Word of God, but it was commingled so that no one could get rest from it. So what did we do? Oh, I take that back. What did we do? We took what was said in Genesis, what David said, what Jesus said, and we twisted it to say the same thing we meant. That's, that's the evil of commingling. That's the concision. Paul says beware of that. Beware of that. When you speak for the Lord, speak for the Lord from what the Lord speaks to you about. I mean to you. And if you use an illustration from Genesis, that's good. Use an illustration from David, that's good. But remember, there's no life in any scripture where Christ is not the life. Why? The life is in the Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son hath not life. Well, that's just about this second verse here. If you won't rest... You need to get right down to what Jesus says. I'll never be perfect in soul. I'll never be perfect in body on this earth. But I'm perfect in spirit. And that's where my rest is. I rest in that. That's the rest we've entered into. Don't mix it all up and you'll be much healthier and happier. Verse 3. For we are the circumcision. Ah. He's already said he preaches the gospel of uncircumcision. Well, he's put a little trick on us here. The word circumcision in this place in the Greek means discipline. We are the disciplined ones which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. Now, when he uses the word circumcision, he doesn't separate it from the in Christ message. So he says, I'm going to talk to you about something that's very difficult. But for you it won't be grievous because you are the, you are the circumcision, the disciplined ones who worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Okay, I'm back to this rest thing. Most human beings don't feel they're at rest until it's a body rest. You know, you just, you just kind of have to relax. A body and a mind rest. That's wonderful. You need that at times. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's saying that we have no confidence in the flesh, so we don't depend on the feeling or even the rest in the flesh. We have no confidence in the flesh. Well, I won't have time to go into it here, but it's a, it's a good subject in the Scripture that there are two kinds of flesh. There's a good flesh and a bad flesh. You knew that already, didn't you? Did you know that? Sure, there's a good flesh. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Christ liveth in me, and the life I live in this flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God. That's good flesh. He's talking about bad flesh here. You see, there's nothing wrong with our flesh if we didn't give a mind to its body pools. You've got to have flesh in several places refers to bodies. Nothing wrong with your body. Fact is, there never has been anything wrong with you. The trouble with you has been the nature that's been in you. 
So here we're talking about flesh that you put no confidence in. But I've got confidence in that flesh where I'm in the in Christ position. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, it's Christ that liveth in me, in Christ's position. And the life I live by the in Christ position in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. See, that's the new life. That's the new gospel. New understanding. So there's, there's good flesh and there's bad flesh. Not all flesh is bad. You can't please God by your exercise of the flesh, but the Jesus in you can operate through your flesh to the glory of God. Oh, don't put any confidence in your flesh. What he's trying to do is make a big point here. He's going to say that if I wanted to have confidence in my flesh, I could have more confidence in my flesh than anybody. Look at verse 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I got a whole lot more. Now, Paul makes a boast there once in a while. And this is one of his boasts. He's making a contrast between the two lives here. He's saying now, if I wanted to boast about my flesh and what I've accomplished in my flesh, who I am in my flesh, I could do it more than any person I know. Well, that may not be a boast. If it's so, it may not be a boast. And it could have been so. There's nobody in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament era, that had any more to boast of than the Apostle Paul in the flesh. In the flesh. Now, what are we getting to here? What is the next thing that happens to a man who knows he died with Jesus on the cross? We're going to talk about the man with the most to boast about in his flesh of any man in the New Testament. He's got a lot to boast about. He's an experienced, educated. We're going to see what he is. But he's prefaced it here by saying that I could boast more than anybody else about my flesh. That's because he's going to demoralize that flesh more than anybody in the Scripture has ever. I'm talking about Jesus and Paul. And we're going to see how Jesus surfaces in this man's life and how the second step after his death is what he's about to take here now. So let's look at it closely. Here's what he could have boasted about in the flesh. This is his flesh list. You got one? Maybe you ought to make a flesh list. Have you ever made a flesh list? I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin, that's the best tribe, he thinks. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Judaizer beyond peer. And as touching the law, he was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, he's the one who destroyed early Christians and got a lot of publicity from it. And when it came to righteousness that was in the law, he was perfect. What a boast that is. Nobody in the scripture ever boasted to being righteous according to the law. In fact, I don't know anybody that ever lived the law, so that's the biggest boast I know. He's talking about himself. He's talking about what he thought about himself. 
Now, he's made the list. He's got it all set out there. Included in this list is the fact that he's a trained rabbi. He's a trained lawyer. He holds two university degrees. He sat at the feet of Gamelia, who was the most sought-after teacher, and the feet of one other man whose name I'll never remember. But they were the most expensive and the best teachers in all the land. His family was wealthy, and they could afford that kind of education for him. So he was trained by these two. He had a great zeal. The Apostle Paul, at that time, as Saul of Tarsus, we think historically had the zeal to be a member of the 70 group Sanhedrin. That's the highest ruling group in Israel. He wanted to be a member there. But he was too young and too unexperienced. But he had that kind of ego. He called it zeal. He had a big ego. That's why he went to the high priest and sought letters that he might destroy any Christians he found. That's his ego. Why did he do that? Well, he said, this Sanhedrin sees all these other young rabbis running around here and they don't think anything about us. I'm going to get their attention. And so when he started destroying Christians, he got their attention. He said, now, this is the best way I'll get their attention and they'll know who I am. And maybe in time, I'll get a seat on the Sanhedrin. That's what history says. So you see, he had a lot of zeal, a lot of training, a lot of education, had money. Other thing about him was he wasn't a very, he, he wasn't a very personable person. He had a real sharp spirit. Uh, he wasn't a good-looking guy at all. He was short, runny, bow-legged. Uh, for, for Isaiah to have said of Jesus, there was no beauty about him that any man would desire him, I wondered what Isaiah would have said about Paul. <laughs> I want to introduce Paul to you. I want you to get a feeling for him, to know him. Because he does the most important thing that must be done in Revelation knowledge. He knows he's dead. He knows he died with Christ on the cross. But he's still a person. He still had a life. He still done a lot of things. There are a lot of things in his mind. They didn't die. What's going to be his attitude if God counts him dead with Christ on the cross? What's going to be his attitude about his life? Now, he's listed off his life. He's told us who and what he was. Verse 7 says... But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. I want you to mark something. In the next two verses, I want you to draw a circle around I. We're going to talk about the first four important eyes of the Christian walk. I. Notice, we're not going to talk about what God said. 
We're not going to talk about what the law said he ought to do. We're not going to talk about what Jesus said he ought to do. We're going to talk about what a man who has the revelation he died with Christ feels he ought to do himself. That means if he doesn't do these things, he'll get by. He'll make heaven. He's perfect in spirit. Christ is in him. But if he really is in love with the Lord, and he's really counted himself dead with Christ on the cross, what's going to be the result of that in his personal life? What's he going to do? That's why the eyes are here. We're going to see a lot of them. Here are the first four of them. He says, what things were gained for me? Number one, I counted lost for Christ. I counted everything gained for me lost for Christ. Who did that? Holy Spirit? Nope. Who did that? Jesus? Nope. I did that. I thought you said we couldn't do anything. Oh, in love, you can do a lot of things to please God. You can't do anything to be saved. You can't do anything to stay saved. But you can do something out of love. So the love affair is going to take hold because he knows that Christ died for him and he died with Christ. So look at it. Number one, I counted everything gained for me lost. First eye. Second eye. Doubtless, yea, doubtless, I count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. What did he do there? He threw away the prestige of his education. He didn't throw away his education, couldn't get rid of that. That was fixed in his mind. Remember the mind and everything that happened to you is like a hard disk. It's always there. What did he do? He threw away the prestige of sitting at the feet of the two greatest preachers alive at that time. I, doubtless, I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. What do you think about that second I? I sat here with you all this week talking and what I'm doing is talking to you about a thing of knowledge. I'm not trying to get you saved. You're not saved. You're welcome to get saved in this meeting but I'm talking mostly to people who are saved. But I'm talking to you on a level that Christ lives in you. I'm talking to you about your knowledge of Christ. Some people are going to sit here and say, well, I never got a thing out of it. Some say, I never understood anything he said. In fact, I was in a meeting not long ago, and there was an old man sitting near the front where I was, not the same one I told you about. This was another one. And when the meeting was over and we had, we had uh, sung, uh, I see Jesus in you, he looked over at his wife and said, I haven't understood one word this guy said. <laughs> well... I felt good. I wasn't perfect. 
I suffered the loss of all things for the excellency of knowledge. I haven't come bringing you a spiritual experience. I tell you there are places you can get experiences all over this countryside. You can go to a building tonight with four or 5,000 people in it and get a huge experience. But I come talking to you about what you must suffer the loss of for the excellency of knowledge because the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ is not in outer things. Even if it's a miracle, even if the dead were raised, there would be no excellency of knowledge there. Where does that come from? That's revelation knowledge that's controlled by the Holy Spirit. And you suffer the loss of everything that makes you who you are to enter that sanctum of knowledge. I love you so much that I'll do anything to help you enter into that secret place hidden with Christ. So some are not going to like me and some are going to want the place jumping. I tell you, I think you're some of the quietest people even in America. I got them moving around, kids and everything. You're, you're quiet. You're either reverend or you're very quiet and sleepy. <laughs> <coughs> Do you understand what I'm doing? What did this man say on the basis of his death? I have suffered the loss of all things for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Not for another experience. Not for the gifts of the Spirit. Not for the power to heal. Not for the office of apostle or prophet. But just for the knowledge of this Jesus that is in me. When did you ever cry out to know about the Christ in you? We'll see. But think about it. That's what we're headed toward. When does a believer ever get a cry for the Christ that's in him? To know him. Just to know him. So the second I says, I suffered the loss of all things for the excellency of knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. I'd like to twist a Pentecostal promise for you. It might help you. It's Acts 1 and 8. It says, after that the Holy Ghost, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, you shall receive power. You want me to tell you what the greatest power of the Holy Spirit is? That'll make you witnesses to the ends of the earth. You know what the greatest power of the Holy Spirit is? Knowledge. Spirit knowledge. Why did it say after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you? It didn't say when the Holy Spirit comes you'll receive knowledge. It says after the whole, there's a time element there. After the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall receive knowledge. And you shall, time element. Post-present, future, you shall be witnesses. That's the greatest power. So we read that, and we saw that when the Holy Ghost come, the building was jumping, <coughs> cloven tongues of fire, spoke with other tongues, 3,000 were saved, 
but yet to come was the power. The power was yet to come. The power had, had already come in an outer form. That was God demonstrating the spectacular. He always has fireworks when he does something new, whether it's Solomon's temple or whether it's the day of Pentecost. A lot of fireworks. But the power was yet to come. The power was to be revealed by this man we're talking about, Paul, because he was to reveal the knowledge that made the difference that Jesus was on this earth in human beings. Look at the third eye here. It says, For whom, Jesus Christ, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dumb. You ever see a believer that said, Yeah, I'm trying to do what's right. Yeah, I'm trying to be faithful. I'm trying to make it work. Paul had such a revelation of Christ in his death that when he got ready to make this move into his ultimate rest, he said, I'm going to take all that stuff I have, become an M, and has happened to me, and I'm not just going to say, I'll give it up to the Lord. He said, I'm going to take it and make dung out of it. That's about as low a thing he could think of. If you don't like the word dung, let's call it fertilizer. <laughs> what is fertilizer? That's what he was putting around his little seed to make it grow Christ. Take all the things that happened to me and I'm going to make it dung. It's going to grow this God incorruptible seed in me. This God nature in me. I'm going to make fertilizer of everything I am so that it will grow. This Christ that's in me. Fourth eye says that I may win Christ. Doesn't mean exactly what it says. What it means, and I've looked at two or three Greek scholars on this, and the consensus is that it means already have Christ, but I'm going to show him that I love him and that I want to keep him and that he's most important to me. I'm going to act like a winner. That I may understand this Christ that's in me. Now those are four eyes that start us off into an understanding here. Verse 9 says, and be found in him. The word found translates no, I know I'm in him. And to know I'm in him. What are we after here? Are we after a super spiritual Christian? Are we after a man with great gifts? Are we looking for an apostle here? No. Here's a man wanting to know what it means to be in Christ. In him. That's what I want to know. I want to know 
what it means to be in Christ. Verse 9. And I want to know it not having mine own righteousness. Okay, what is our own righteousness? What we've done, who we are, what we've accomplished, how we're trained, what our identity is aside from Christ. You get that? What is my righteousness? What I've been, who I am, what I've done. I'm gripped by this every time I talk because once in a while I, I seek for an illustration or an example and the best thing that comes to me is something I've done and unless it's absolutely necessary, I won't talk about what I've done because of this. Because you see, what I've done and who I am constitutes my righteousness. That's what I based myself on before Christ was my life. That's what I used as a motivation for my life. Well, let's talk about that a moment. Is all that Paul did wrong? Was his education wrong? Was his training wrong? Of course not. I have a strong feeling God chose him because of most of these things. Because that's solidarity. That's a pure human there that he could depend upon. That's a guy that had guts. That's why God knocked him down and hollered at him and struck him blind and called him in the first place. He knew he could trust him. He had all of these benefits. But you see, what God sees in us that he's going to use must be something he sees and not something that makes us somebody. So you know what happened? The training, the education, the refinement, the stability, the faithfulness that was in the Apostle Paul in his background all become Christ things that Christ could move through and manifest himself. But what Paul need to do? In revelation knowledge, according to his death, he had to wipe that out of his mind. He had to say, if the Lord wants to use this, okay, if he don't, it's dead, it's done. To me, it's done. If God wants to use it, okay. But it makes me nothing. I've always got somebody coming and asking me, are you an apostle? Or somebody come, I have several words given to me, words of the Lord. They come and say, I believe you're an apostle. That irritates me. Nobody's heard what I've said. I don't want to be an apostle. I'm already a son. If I'm an apostle, that's something God uses. But not me, you. The five ministries in the church belong to the body. They're Christ ministries. He could use any one of you in this audience here for any one of those ministries and not tell anybody. And nobody would ever know what happened because they're ministries of Christ. Paul's going to get to this. In other places, he makes that clear about the ministry is not man, it's Christ. But here he's coming into that focus. Revelation knowledge is bringing him now to what it is he makes dumb. If God wants to use what Gamaliel taught him, okay. If God wants to use him being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a lawyer, a rabbi, okay. 
But he said, for me, I've got to let Christ be my all. I've got to start at a point to where I'm nothing, he's everything. Did you know the Apostle Paul seven times in his epistles said, I am nothing? Oh, he believed this. Revelation knowledge had hit him. The second point of revelation knowledge was very deep and important to him. I am nothing. So our righteousness is a maintaining of what we think makes us who we are. That's our righteousness. But instead, here we have a crystal pistis. Verse 9, so important. This is so important because faith has become a great issue in our day. More people attend faith churches and faith, listen to faith preachers than ever before. And so these verses are very precious to me. I used to be there and I could talk about this if I want to. Verse 9 says, Be found in him not having my own righteousness which is of the law, but that righteousness which is through what? The faith of Christ. That's Christopistus. The faith of Christ. Almost all new Bibles have cut that out. Five times Paul says that the believer has the faith of Christ. It has been changed in most every Bible to faith in Christ. We've got to stop here for this week, but we'll pick up next week where we left off. Now, don't forget, great podcasts are also available on our website, christ-life.org. All of the great, wonderful teachings from Warren Litzman that we bring you each week. And I want to say that because this series of Jesus and Paul are some of the best yet. So if you've missed any, or even if you've listened to all of them and go to the end with us, Go back and start from the beginning. I promise you, you're going to hear things you haven't heard before. The website is christ-life.org, christ-life.org. And while you're there, be sure and visit the bookstore and especially look at that book on Paul. Wonderful book and goes great with this study. Well, our thanks to Robbie Litzman for allowing us to go into the archives each week. Valerie Hill does our Twitter account. Tammy Laycock does the weekly podcast notes, and this program is produced weekly by Teresa Ferraro from the Christ Life Fellowship. Until next time, I'm Brad Wilson, loving the Christ Life.